Does it bring you joy? That is a question that is asked by author Marie Kondo. Kondo is a professional organizer. Maybe you need a professional organizer in your life. That's a vocation I had never heard of until she became famous. And she uses this question to simplify and to declutter her clients' lives. If the answer is yes to the question, does this bring you joy, then a particular object or artifact or closet occupying sport jacket should be kept. But if the answer is no, then it's off to the dumpster or to the goodwill. I am a minimalist myself, and I find Kondo's approach very simple and effective for things, possessions, hobbies, uses of my time. I like tidy and clean, simplicity and order, and having a place for everything and everything in its place. But Kondo's question is not universal. That is, it doesn't apply to each and every situation that we find ourselves in. To be sure, it does apply to some people in our lives. There are individuals in your life today and you know this, who are really nothing but great psyche-sucking, joy-killing, happiness-disturbing, fault-finding malcontents. And such folks may not need a lot of time and space in your life, even if you share your genetics with said people. And keeping emotional boundaries can save your soul. In other cases, does it bring you joy? It just cannot be applied. Relationships are unpredictable. Relationships are messy and sticky. They wax and they wane. And we are, if we were to quit every time the joy meter runs into the red, we would throw from our lives even the people that are most important to us. Would we not? And then turn your attention to the world. Does the state of American health and well-being bring you joy? Do the escalating deaths from COVID-19 bring you joy? Does our rhetoric and our deadly dangers of polarization bring you joy? Not if you care about your children or the future. Yet our lives are, as my professors told me in school, in medias res. Good Latin phrase. In the midst of. We are in this story, and we are both victims of the story and contributors to our story. And we can't get rid of it. You can't just toss your life to the curb like it's a scratchy sweater. That's societal suicide. It's, it can't be done. We are left to find joy somewhere else, being that you will not find much joy at times in the world. Joy has to come from somewhere else because the world cannot deliver the joyful goods. Joy has to come from within. And all the spiritual masters of history have understood this. The Buddha said, when the mind is clear, joy will follow. Socrates said, know thyself because it is in the inner person that you experience joy. Live from your soul. Rumi taught us, for that is the river of joy. And Anne Lamott, who one of her favorite phrases is, laughter is actually carbonated grace, which is a fantastic phrase. She likes to quip that joy is an inside job. 
on and on we could go, and thanks to Nancy, now our third candle of Advent is burning, flipped on with a switch. We remember the words of our own teacher, our own Lord, Jesus, who said, my joy will be where? Within you. And it will be made full, as if it could run over out of our lives and onto others. So let Marie Kondo help you with your clutter. Your life will be better for it. But just remember that your personal joy is not determined by what is in your closet or in your garage. Joy is determined by what is in your heart. And rather than asking, does it bring you joy, maybe we should be asking, do I bring the joy? Do I bring it with me as I go? Another spiritual master, Father Anthony DeMello, was fond of a story about this cantankerous beggar. And this guy sat on a box on the side of the road for years, begging for alms when people would come by. And the stranger came by and saw him sitting there on the box. And the stranger says, well, I don't have any money, but tell me about this box that you're sitting on. And the beggar says, it's just a box. And the stranger won't give up on it. He says, yeah, I know it's a box, but what's inside the box? I don't know. I've never looked. Well, why have you never looked? I, and by this time, the, the beggar's angry. Just leave me alone. If you don't have any money, move along. And the stranger says, well, let's take a look in the box. And so they take the box, they break it open, and it's full of this golden treasure. And the beggar has been sitting on it all these years asking for others to help him out when he's had everything that he needs all along. And I think that's us, especially in 2020. We sit begging and pleading, empty, sometimes angry, accusatory, helpless, trapped. We want someone else to make us happy. Do it for me. And as soon as that someone has passed by, we start on the next one who comes by. And all along, we have more than we need within us. It's right here within us the entire time. That is joy. That is the gladness of being alive. It is the presence of God's love given to us, the grace shed upon us, His presence manifest daily in our lives. It's there all the time. You just might have to look for it. But once you find it, you can put it to good use. I mean, what beggar, having found a golden treasure, would then keep begging for crumbs? He wouldn't. She wouldn't. It would revolutionize their lives. I like something that, that C.S. Lewis wrote about when he talked about the four loves and he talked about joy. And he said, joy does two things. First of all, it stops us. If you've ever seen one of those most pristine, beautiful sunsets on the Gulf of Mexico, a, a beautiful work of art, you hold a baby in your, a newborn baby in your, in your arms. That's the joy of that stops you. I mean, really, how many people do you know watching a sunset on the Gulf of Mexico stand there at Grayton Beach watching it go down, looking for that green flash that I've never seen? Have you seen it, Billy? Well, have you? I haven't seen it. Who? You've seen it? You go all the time. I just what I need. I need to see more. I need more repetition. You stand there looking at that sunset 
How many, if a hundred people are looking at that sunset, look at that sunset and go, oh my God, the rent's due tomorrow. They don't, do they? You know, you might do it t- tonight or the next couple of days when you see it again, but you don't consciously think about these other things. There is an arresting moment to joy that stops you and everything falls away. You know what I'm talking about. And then Lewis says, the second thing that happens is that you have to share it with somebody else. That's why we all reach for our phone. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Ah, oh, And it doesn't capture it, but you want somebody else to see it, to experience, to hear it, to feel it, to have the same joy that you have. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, my joy will be within you. It will stop you. It will arrest you. You will center on it. Other things fall away, and then you can't help but share it with others who need to hear it as well. So pay attention to the joy that's all around you. And pay attention to this story, this song of joy that we call, as Anna said, Psalm 126. I like that. We are in year B now. This is the new church year at Advent of the Revised Common Lectionary. And a quick primer for those of us from a non-liturgical tradition, the Revised Common Lectionary runs in a three-year cycle, year A, year B, year C. And the idea is that when you do the daily readings from the lectionary, you get a varied and robust rotation of the scriptures. And after you finish that three-year cycle, you will have read the entire New Testament and most of the Old Testament just by following the daily readings. So we come back to this text Three years after visiting it, you remember this text from three years ago, right? Yeah, I know you did. From the New Living Translation, it's called a pilgrim's song, and it is a beautiful thing. It's a dream come true. It's laughter, it's singing, it's astonishment, it's the reversal of bad fortune, it's the desert blooming a garden, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's no wonder that this psalm has been chosen by the church fathers on this Advent Sunday of joy to read. It's one of the younger psalms that we have. David gets credit for writing many of the psalms, that giant slaying, heart playing, singing king of Israel. But this psalm comes years and years, 500 years, 600 years, maybe, 700 years, maybe, after David. And so just a brief timeline here, we have Abraham in the Old Testament about 2,000 years before Christ. So Abraham lived as long ago before Jesus as we live after Jesus, long time. You go 500 years forward and you come to the time of Moses, generally speaking. Go another 500 years and you come to the time of David. And now in this psalm, we have to go 500 at least more. We're about 500 to 400 years before Jesus. What happened that sets up this psalm was the destruction of Jerusalem. 586 B.C., 586 years before Jesus, the Babylonian army marches in to the Middle East and levels everything. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, destroys Jerusalem, plows up and salts the fields, and gathers up anyone who had any intelligence, anyone who had any skill set, anyone who was young, puts them in chains, and marches them 600 miles across the desert to Baghdad. Deportation. It was a genocide. 
It was a holocaust. It was nation-side. Because this is what the Babylonians did to obliterate a culture. And if you weren't young and you weren't strong and you weren't smart, they just exterminated you. That's what happens before Psalm 26. Just to give you uh, an, an insight into their, their cruelty, the last king of Israel, Zedekiah, had two sons. And when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, Zedekiah and his sons sought to get away, but they were captured. And they brought Zedekiah before the general and dropped him to his knees And they brought his two adult sons, and they killed his sons in front of him. And then they put out his eyes, so that that would be the last thing that he would ever see. And they put him in chains and marched him to Babylon. Now you have the context for Psalm 126. For 70 years, the Jews have been in Babylon. Generations now have been born and raised far from home. They've never seen Jerusalem. They've never lived in their homeland. They have been scattered to the wind. And then all of a sudden, they can come back. And we turn our attention to Psalm 126. The Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem. It was like a dream We were filled with laughter. We sang with joy. The Lord has done amazing things for us. Only a few thousand came back. Most of the nation was dispersed all over the world. But those few thousand came back to rebuild their homes, to rebuild the city, most importantly to rebuild the temple. And when they see Jerusalem for the first time, most of them in their lives, this is the song that they sang. We've come home. God has been good to us. Can you imagine at the end of 70 years of oppression to be able to say God's been good to us? They didn't say, look how bad we've had it. God has been good to us that we've lived to see this day. What has God done for you? Has God been good to you? I know it's been a hard year. And for some people, sung among us the hardest single year of their lives. For our own country, the death rate in raw numbers, just count the death certificates issued in 2020 in the United States without looking at the cause of death. And our raw numbers are up 20%. 20% more people have died in the United States today than the previous five-year average. That's a lot to mourn. That's a lot to grieve. It's been hard. People have buried spouses. People have buried children. People have buried parents. There's been so much loss, so much distance, so much displacement, so much interruption. I feel it. I know it. You do too. I've lost family. I've buried friends. My kids are scattered around the world. I have this gaping sense of alienation from so much of what I used to know. You feel it. I'm not unique in this, but I'm not dead either, and neither are you. And if you're here today, you're still standing. 
As I say around my house to Cindy, to my boys this week, I said it had the opportunity to say it to my sister and to my mother in multiple phone calls. It'll get better or it won't. <laughs> How you like that for that pastoral, you know, attaboy. It'll get better or it won't. Regardless, God has been good to us. You are awash in grace. You have been the recipients of the amazing. And just think about it in pure material terms. Most of us today arrived in vehicles that cost two, three, six times the average annual salary in this country. Hundreds of people today and over this week will pick up a device and watch this service right now, and they will watch it on a device that cost more than one billion people on this planet will make in a year. Think about the waitress who's been living on pennies this year. Think about the old man who buried his wife and couldn't go into the hospital and hold her hand as she passed. Think about the teenagers and the young adults whose lives, whose graduations, and whose educations have been upended. Think about the children forced to be at home this year in homes that are war zones and tinderboxes of abuse. Think of those living in utter isolation and loneliness. And when you begin to think of folks like that, then you know, a few restrictions to our travel and a little delay in our own personal entertainment seems hardly a sacrifice to make. Turn your attention to the goodness of God. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Look how far you have already come. Look for the joy of the Lord, and you will find it. And it won't be out there. It'll be right here. And it will sustain you through these days. I want you to imagine a scene, if you could. There's an old man climbing a mountainside. He looks to be a hundred years old. He's stooped over, skinny as a rail, might weigh a hundred pounds. He's got a walking cane. And his children are around him. And they're steadying him gently, reverently. They're all on Social Security themselves, by the way. Because he's so old. And they're gently helping him up this mountain. And with his children are their children, his grandchildren. And some of them have children, great-grandchildren, some babes in arms. It's this family reunion on the side of a mountain, and they're all climbing up this mountain together. Who is this old man? Well, when he was 20 years old, he was a rabbinical student in Jerusalem. And like every 20-year-old, He's excited about the future, a little bit confused about what he really wants to do with his life. But he's alive with all the youth that we all had at 20. And disaster strikes. Babylonian army rolls in. Destroys his town. Kills his parents. Disperses his siblings. They capture him, realize he's a university student. They put him in chains. Walk him 600 miles across the desert to Baghdad. 
And it takes a decade, a decade for it to sink in on him that he will never see home again. He marries, has a family. He's in his 90s. He tells his grandkids every night at dinner, ten parts of beauty were given to the world, nine were given to Jerusalem, and I'll never see it again. But then, he gets word that you can go home. He starts packing his bags. He's 95 years old. His kids come to him and say, this is a fool's errand. You can't travel that far. It takes six weeks of walking to get there. You're so old. You're sick. Just, just, just relax. I'm going. By God, I am going. Packing, 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 packing. He starts walking out the door. They can't stop him. So when you can't stop them, you can't beat them. You join them. Whole family goes. They all sell their stuff. Big yard sales out in the city streets of Babylon. We're getting rid of everything. We're going home. And here they go, they pack up mom's bones in a box because she's going home too. And they walk six weeks in the desert wondering if this old man will live to see the next morning. But every morning he's the first one up, he's made the coffee and he's ready to walk again. And finally at the end of those weeks, they bring him up on the side of this hillside. The hillside he's been climbing is the Mount of Olives and he stands at the top of it and he looks down and he sees his shattered childhood home and he begins to weep and he drops to his knees and he says, the Lord has brought back his exiles to Jerusalem. It is like a dream. With laughter we sing for joy. What amazing things the Lord has done for us. We planted in tears. May we harvest with shouts of joy. Weeping we planted our seeds. But in joy we bring in the harvest. It's an old man like that that wrote these words. His name is lost. His experience is not. And if someone who has suffered that and still find the joy within them to keep walking. And my friends, we can find that same joy too.